Hello, this is Monocle Reads. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is Christopher Riley. He's a freelance journalist based in Sydney, specialising in music, sports and fashion. He's worked as a deputy editor of GQ, contributing editor for Men's Health and as a columnist for the New York Times Style magazine. His new book with How Latukefu is King, Life, Death and Hip-Hop, How's Memoir. It charts his childhood as the son of first-generation Tongan immigrants to becoming one of Australia's most influential music artists. Christopher, welcome to Monocle Reads. It's such a pleasure to be here and um, it's quite surreal today because I'm typically on the other side of this sort of interview and dynamic, so um, I'm more than happy to let you do all the work today, so thank you. <laughs> well, it's, it's lovely to have you here and I should probably say we've, we've known each other a long time and so for me, you doing a book about hip-hop does, when you look at your background, which I hope you'll tell us, does seem a little odd. Absolutely. I, I get asked this question a lot. And just I, to explain you, you are, as people who can't see you, you are a kind of... A white a, middle-class <laughs> boy from the suburbs of London. Yes, yeah, yeah I, I will say that. <laughs> so, yeah, to have made this my niche is somewhat surprising. I have had sort of a lifelong fascination with the art form, but it's kind of snowballed over years and become more than a sort of a cultural fascination and my kind of professional passion. I suppose I want to jump in there and ask you, this might be an unanswerable question, what is hip-hop? Wow, okay, so we could go into the sort of the five elements of of hip-hop if we wanted to get really technical, um, turntablism, rapping, graffiti, etc. Hip-hop is... uh, I was about to use the term urban. I hate that term. It is black music, you know. It's originated from the Bronx in the late 70s. DJ Cool Herc, who is actually a figure in the book. And in many ways, it was protest music. It was music to articulate sort of black identities in various communities. And that's why it's become such a sort of a global expression is because it's identifiable for so many other communities around the world who are feeling that same sense of potentially oppression or even just a sense of that marginalisation, not having their voice be in the mainstream. And so it is music, it's cool, it's vibrant. And right now, as far as I'm concerned, it's the most relevant cultural form of expression that we have in the Western world. That's part of why I'm so fascinated by it. Uh, how, how did you first encounter it and, and what led you to engage with it so much? So, as you said, boy from the suburbs of London, hip-hop has become particularly relevant in England over the last 10 years. So with grime music, I'm sure you're familiar with that. So that's become a major force in the UK. And I, I dabbled in that. I was actually, I was more of a sort of a singer-songwriter, sort of folk aficionado until about 10 years ago. And for me, hip-hop satisfies that itch of, of a former literary student in that, you know, it's poetry. And so after university, as I say, it spoke to me in a way that was, that I wasn't finding elsewhere. I was sort of becoming somewhat disillusioned with my kind of 50s literature that was my sort of passion before. And then where it really developed for me was actually in that sort of professional transition. So I started following a group of artists in Australia and they were just incredibly captivating. You know, the content is, is quality. But at the same time, they were being prevented from performing. And so we have a group who, this is 1-4, I'd encourage you all to go check them out. They're from Mount Jura in Western Sydney. 
and they were transformative. And so they were having sort of the biggest impact in Australian hip-hop or even Australian music and these global recognitions. And these are five dudes from, you know, quote-unquote the hood with no sort of access to opportunities and whatnot. And for me, that's a remarkable story. And so then you start to sort of look a little bit deeper and the police are labelling them a gang and preventing them from performing. And so what we have there is that sort of transition point of like, okay, so now we're talking about freedom of expression. We're talking about essentially civil rights here. And that I've always been fascinated with the kind of the stories behind the stories. Mm -hmm. And so I'm obsessed with sports, with music, etc. But anyone can kick a ball. Anyone can sing a song. And for me, it's about trying to dig into, okay, so why are they, why they do the things that they do? What are the values that they hold dear, even if they're not necessarily my values? How can I pick apart, like, what motivates them? And seeing these lads come from nothing and articulate their kind of background with such sort of unapologetic ferocity, like, it was just so remarkable. And then to witness the Australian police prevent them from changing their circumstances, that's what is the sort of, that's the light switch moment for me. And I think as a journalist, you're all kind of looking for your niche as to where you can have impact, mm. you know. Mm. And I saw this opening, as it were. There weren't many people in Australia covering this story. And if they were, it was the Daily Mail writing horrific sort of smear pieces about them. And yes, they've made some mistakes. I'm not going to paint the boys out to be, you know, angels. But they were trying to change those circumstances. And to prevent them from performing, to prevent them from earning any actual real money from this, that's a major, major issue as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And to throw my weight as a journalist behind that story and try and bring a little bit more nuance to it, that's where my kind of fascination with hip-hop snowballed. And then you're looking elsewhere and it's not only one four that are going through this. This is a community that are trying to be silenced from telling their truth. So Louis Theroux actually spoke about this recently. And I'm specifically talking about drill music in many ways, which is a, a quite a sort of a violent offshoot of hip-hop. And he was saying the, the banning of drill because um, the UK is doing a particularly good job of censoring it. He was saying how it's a sort of a curious case of shooting the messenger. And I think it's absolutely right to ban this form of music is this is these rappers, they are communicating their life stories. If you don't like that, then go into these communities and help them change their circumstances. Don't just cut off the mouthpiece. Like, that's just shocking to me. And so if I can then go into these communities and learn a little bit more, bring some nuance, bring some background, then I think that's a job well done. It's a, f a fantastic uh, initiative. Um, I just want to follow up a little bit more. So let's look at your, your, your journalistic evolution, because I think that's really interesting, because here you were in London. Suddenly, you relocate to Australia. In fact, working with one of our ex-colleagues here at, at Monocle 24, Jack Phillips, who's a, a dear friend here at Monocle 24, and I think we put you in touch. And then absolutely. And, and can I say, actually, I didn't even, I didn't even recognise this, Georgina. You absolutely, you kind of sparked that. You know, Jack describes you as as his mentor, and it was the first meeting that I had in Australia. Uh, Jack was uh, digital editor of GQ. Um, I got to say, like the transition from the UK to Australia has been incredibly fruitful for me in many ways. To a degree, it's a smaller pond over there. And so the opportunities that I was afforded when I arrived was quite significant compared to here. So I was working in publishing when I was in London. I was a teacher, actually. I started off as an English teacher, got into publishing somewhat stale. I was I was going through a period of time. I was at Random House where I didn't get a few of the opportunities that I kind of hoped for. And I saw my trajectory as a book editor. My partner and I 
suddenly had this change of heart and we kind of woke up one day and they were, we were like, screw it, let's look abroad, let's look for new opportunities. Arrived in Australia and I, I, I floated for a couple of years, if I'm honest with you. I was sort of looking for my sort of access point. I did some freelancing. I stayed in, in publishing and ebooks. I was working Alan and Unwin over there. And then the gig at GQ came about. And so uh, that became something that I just, I threw everything behind. To have come from a book background where the turnaround time is like a year, year and a half, two years for each project, to work on the fast-paced sort of magazine life was just, it was eye-opening to me. And it was, it was captivating. It was, it was fantastic. And so, again, I kind of floated around there to a degree. I started off as sub-editor. So as sub-editor, you get to get a taste of everything and I guess that was three years in which it was me sort of honing my craft the editor there Mike Christensen and then after that Jake Miller were both just the greatest tutors I could have imagined and I honed my skills as a writer because I'd, I'd never written before I'd plugged away with blogs and stuff before to try and get some sort of like noticing but I'd never really written before GQ in that sense and so sort of honed my craft there looked for my sort of my niche as it were and this is where the story of one for the story of Australian hip-hop started to sort of pick up pace as I was sort of picking up my space as a writer and yeah five years later I'm now apparently a Penguin published author writing about hip-hop and men's health now is also one of my major focuses as well so let's go back to hip hop. You've told us what hip hop is. You've told us what drew you to it. And you've told us about this hugely important untold story that these people have something desperate they are trying to communicate. And this message is being suppressed. They're trying to do it through music. And actually, the authorities do not like this. But it has become something that's hugely popular amongst their peers worldwide, not just in Australia, obviously here, and particularly big in America. So why this particular artist, how Latte? Kefu. Who is he? How did you meet him? Absolutely. So a little bit of a circuitous sort of route to him. So it does come back to 1-4, who I'm talking about, who is this young trailblazing drill group. All my attention was kind of on them. And this is about, where are we now, 2022? This is about sort of 2017, 2018. And I'm fascinated with everything they're doing. I'm looking at all of their socials, all of their music. And then there's this one guy in the background, right? And I speak to some of my Australian friends who are more tapped into the scene and I say, who, who's this gent in the background? And a friend of mine says to me, that's Hal Artukefu. And he was like, that's how we know these guys are legit because they have, they have Hal in, his, in, the, uh, sort of in the team guiding things. And I said, okay, cool. Uh, I went away and I was like, and I need to find out who this man is. Did some research, found out he's part of one of the very first sort of major Australian hip-hop groups called Coolism back in the day. He's also a Triple J radio host, which is, for English listeners, kind of the equivalent of the BBC. And started sort of doing a little bit more digging and finding that, like, when you're talking about Australian hip-hop, all roads lead to how. He was, I use the term gatekeeper, he hates that term. He's more of a gate opener for people. But he was this massive sort of mentor for the next generation. And why I found him quite captivating in that sense is, it's quite easy to disavow the current generation of hip-hop, particularly this one form of quite violent hip-hop, uh, which is drill music, that often gets sort of 
poo-pooed by the the OGs in the scene, as it were. And you know, OGs? that's actually a culturally appropriative term for me to be using. It means original gangster, but it's kind of passed into common parlance as, as in like a stalwart of the scene. Sorry. Right. And so it's more common for these kind of stalwarts of the scene to be like, you know, this isn't real hip hop. This isn't the. And because Howe's type of hip hop was far more conscious, far more sort of creative storytelling, as it were. And to see that he was throwing his resources and energy behind these young lads said something about who he was. So I brought him on to a podcast. I was producing a podcast for GQ at the time called The Men Who Raised Us. That's a little subtle um, plug for you guys there. And I brought him onto the podcast. And we ended up having a fascinating conversation. And it almost wasn't even about hip-hop. It was about family. It was about his cultural background. It was about his father. It was about his, you know, upbringing. And I just found him to be... Again, you know, we're talking about the stories behind the stories here. Like, yes... He's got an incredible legacy as one of the first major hip-hop artists in Australia. But he's also someone who's managed to to sort of chart that journey with integrity. And those family values that he is always, that has always sort of driven his um, everything that he does, I just found to be that, you know, we have a choice as journalists. You know this, Georgina. Like, we get to tell the new stories and tell the stories we want. And that was someone that I wanted to help sort of articulate his life story again i felt like within the sort of the context of australian storytelling they do a particularly good job of telling the stories of the shane warns and the sort of the white athletes the true blue aussies it's less prevalent to be telling the haula tukefus the tongan migrants who have had these completely outsized impacts on australian culture and I found the man fascinating. There were so many sort of like similarities between my own sort of familiar upbringing and also things that were completely new and alien to me that I got to learn about Pacific Island culture mm. and things like that. So, yeah, how Tukefu is, you know, for want of a better, better word, a legend. The book is called King and the man is a king. His, his name, how means king in Tongan. He was part of Coolism, won the very first ARIA, quote-unquote, Urban Award. So when hip-hop was introduced to that in Australia, he won the first award, series of iconic albums, went solo. And then again, but it's about that next incarnation of him when he becomes the mentor. That's what I'm fascinated with. We can all have a great career and then go off into the sunset. Mm. The fact that he has then opened the doors behind him for the next generation... That's what I think makes him so fascinating, yeah. and that's a big part of the book. So it's written in four parts. I love the fact that they rhyme. There's learn, churn, earn, and return. Uh, and that really is just describing four different phases in Howe's life. And as you say, there was this whole kind of progression through through hip-hop. He went through quite a lot of trauma in, in various ways and then really broke through and is now giving back. And I wonder if you could just give us a, a brief kind of take on that. Absolutely. And I would um, potentially right to say trauma. And it's certainly a term that would be identified to me and many people who read this book. We were quite keen to get away from that kind of trauma porn in some sense. So, yes, the man's gone through challenges, but he's also had a very uplifting sort of family community behind him. So it's not necessarily a story of like, quote unquote, rags to riches. Mm. But in terms of you, right. So that structure, shout out to MC Search, a uh, one of a sort of an iconic US rapper who coined those sort of the four stages of life. And that really articulated Howe's journey. And that is what helped us sort of wrap up the book into this kind of the giving back the mentorship sort of journey that he went through. In many ways, it's that typical, we open up with learn and it's him 
finding his voice. It's him discovering hip-hop for the very first time, along with the rest of the world back in the 80s. And what I love about it is this was him finding his community reflected back at him from American screens that he didn't have in Australia. And, you know, there's this passage in the book, it's like when he's watching um, breakdancing group in America... And he was saying, you know, they weren't us. They weren't Pacific Islanders, but they were us at the same time. We were, minorities were seeing ourselves reflected back. So he found this form of expression that spoke to him. And again, just like the diligence, this is what I loved is kind of, you know, he's sharpening his sword throughout that first um, section. And he's really sort of diving so deep into the sort of the granular details of what hip-hop means and sort of learning his craft and we have all these sorts of wonderful passages of um i hate to say this how sorry to shine a light on this but his, his very first attempts at rapping and the complete plagiarism that he was doing <laughs> when he was in class and he was asked to perform a, an original reading of, of a poem and he recited an ice tea rap ice tea is one of the very first gangster rappers from the states and this is a 13 year old tongan lad in australia <laughs> and he never got caught and that ended up being submitted to a local poetry competition <laughs> so there's all these wonderful sort of tales about getting to grips with the genre, with the music, finding himself in it. And then the next stage before we sort of churn, and this is where we start to get into, like, the real hairy stories. And so how, as you say, you know, he, he's lived through some shit, and this is where the story kind of really picks up. He joined a graffiti crew called KOA, Kiss Our Ass, and that's where it becomes the sort of, like, strap yourself in this story could go either way. And that's what I think is quite interesting about why it's identifiable for a lot of people is he... There are a lot of people that he was with back in that in that time who aren't necessarily here anymore. Yeah. And to be able to, to commemorate those people was really important for us whilst also just able to tell some really swashbuckling stories. Yeah, absolutely. And there are some great stories. I mean, this is a, a page turner. It's not just the, the sort of memoir of somebody. It really does drive you on. You want to know what happens next. What did happen next? <laughs> <laughs> and so he met a young man named Daniel. And so he kind of, he found another young lad who had made hip-hop his everything. And they formed this group, Callism, and originally, they were just a couple of young lads trying to find out how they could sort of articulate what was going on in their heads, what was going on in their, in Australia. And what's really unique about these guys is hip-hop has always been, because the epicentre is the States, people have always looked to the States and said, like, how can we copy them? And that all, lack of authenticity is always easy to just kind of pick apart. Whereas Howe and Daniel, as coolism, were like, how can we represent Australia how can we find our own original voice? And that's the kind of the next phase of the book is really, you know, now they've got some life stories to tell and they get to say, you know, how can we put this on wax? How can we express, you know, for example, like rugby. Rugby is a huge cultural fascination in Australia, just as it is in the islands in Tonga, Samoa, etc. And how can we embed that into the music? We don't have to be talking about baseball references, about American football. We don't have to be shouting out boroughs in New York that we've never been to. And so uh, they were really kind of trailblazing in that sense in sort of putting Australia on the map. Mm. And that's always what's kind of so fascinating. It's what's happened in the UK over the past 10 years with grime. It's like this is the first time we're like, OK, how can we not just copy the States and really articulate what is going on here? And that's where, where the transition point for UK 
hip hop is like the world starts to take notice at that point because they can see the authenticity. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, and so yeah, the next phase is them really, you know, churning away, and then they start to in earn. They start to sort of reap the rewards. They have this one moment, um, uh, an album. Well, it's actually just before. So they had given a few demos out to a few connected people. I don't want to give too many stories away. And next thing you know, that producer or DJ had sort of copied these tapes and passed them around. And it was as close as viral could get back then. You know, next thing you know, that those tapes are being passed all around Australia. And there's guys coming up to him saying, like, when's your next album? And they were like, I haven't made an album. What are you talking about? <laughs> that was just a demo. And he didn't even know. All of these success stories, there's an element of, of luck, of timing and whatnot, coupled with the talent. And within a few years, they were on a, on a national stage winning awards an incredible success story. But then again, you know, this is, as you say, you know, a bit of a page turner is then some problems arise in their relationship. And that's always where it gets tricky, particularly, you know, with a group, you're not only speaking for yourself, you're speaking for, you know, a group. And so some challenges between the two of them started to arise. And it's like, okay, so how can we continue to create art whilst also going through this in the background? And that was really tough to navigate. Yeah. And in many ways, that was one of the most gratifying parts of the book again not trying to give too much away but some of those problems had persisted to a degree and in the process of writing this book they were reconciled in many ways and that relationship sort of kick-started again and so I think that's a wonderful sort of legacy of this book. So really interesting what you say about the relationship and the book's effect on it because doing a book like this I mean there are two questions I have about it firstly for you to get that embedded into somebody else's life is extraordinary. I mean, you must feel like you know him inside out. You must have to trust him to tell you the absolute truth. And from his side, that's got to be an enormous experience to speak out your story to somebody. I mean, it could almost be like sort of psychotherapy. You can pull back and you can see the bigger picture. And it does do things like perhaps heal relationships. Absolutely. And that was the one aspect of the journey that I didn't anticipate. The level of honesty that he had to get to as well in order to tell me everything was really quite startling. And I don't think throughout the journey that I always acknowledged necessarily you know, the toll that it takes on him. I was just focusing on sort of doing my job as the writer. But absolutely, it was... I always say that the biggest challenge with this book was the sort of the emotional aspect rather than the creative or the sort of technical aspect of it. Because it was also not just with, with him... It wasn't just hundreds of hours with how, it was also dozens and dozens of hours on the phone or in person with different members of his community, his family members, his friends. And to be entrusted with their story was really, you know, there would be times where I came away and I'm on, I'm in tears on the other end of the phone. And it was, it was like I was a therapist and a priest at the same time and it was sometimes it was sharing their sins from the past or whatnot or just you know harrowing things that they'd been through that they don't know me from anyone and again you know as a journalist Georgian you know you've got to earn their trust before you can ever dream of of getting these stories and getting the honesty that you need and so I had to ensure that I went about that in a very sort of careful and sort of sincere way and so any takeaways I have from this book, it is that if you are writing a biography and a memoir, you need to take their responsibility incredibly seriously. Christopher, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Georgine. It's been a pleasure. That's Christopher Riley and How La Tukefu. The book is King, Life, 
Death and Hip Hop. It's published by Penguin Random House Australia. You've been listening to Monocle Reads. Our researcher was Emily Sands. Our producer was Nora Hall. You can download this show and previous episodes from our website or app from SoundCloud, Mixcloud or iTunes. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>